I'm Steve Forbes, and this is What's Ahead. Today, my guest is Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, President and CEO of Biotechnology Innovation Organization, also known as BIO. We talk about biotech's response to the COVID-19 crisis, her commitment to diversity in her industry, and her hopes for the future of biotechnology and medicine. But first, what's ahead? Bitcoin is the new darling of investors. It has rocketed since March from $5,000 to over $40,000 before pulling back a bit. Fans are predicting the rise will resume and that this cryptocurrency is headed for $100,000 or higher. People are piling in because of a lack of faith in government currencies. The Federal Reserve and other central banks have crushed interest rates and are printing unimaginable amounts of money to pay for COVID relief measures and to stimulate damaged economies. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are now seen as a respectable investment class and financial institutions are adding it to their portfolios. Enthusiasts say Bitcoin is the new gold and that'll eventually replace the dollar. Not so fast. Whatever Bitcoin is, it is not money. We use money to buy products and services. The dollar, for instance, is like a claim check for a car or a coat or a ticket to an event. Only in its case, you can use it to purchase or sell just about anything. Money works best when it has a stable value. While there are stories of vendors willing to accept a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, these will remain curiosities until they are stable in value. Contracts are essential for an economy, whether it's buying a house with a mortgage, leasing a car, purchasing insurance, and countless other activities. Who in their right mind would sign a long-term contract based on Bitcoin? Say you took out a mortgage in March for $250,000. Today, you'd owe the bank almost $2 million. With Bitcoin at stake one day, dog food the next, and caviar the day after. Another problem with Bitcoin is that it has a fixed supply. The amount of it cannot be increased. By contrast, the supply of money must be able to expand to meet the growing needs of a growing economy. Between 1775 and 1900, when the U.S. went from a simple agricultural-based economy to the mightiest industrial nation of the world, the supply of dollars went up 160-fold. For cryptocurrencies to seriously challenge existing money, they must be as easy to use as money is today, and they must be fixed in value preferably to gold or something like the Swiss franc, so they can use them for contracts. And now, my interview with Dr. McMurray Heath. My special guest today is Dr. Michelle McMurray Heath. She's the CEO, starting in June of 2020, of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, which is an umbrella organization for 1,000 life science companies in 30 countries around the world. 95% of them are small, so it covers a wide, wide spectrum, not only in pharmaceuticals, but also in the environment and in the area of agriculture, quite a group of companies. Before we get into uh, bio, I want to uh, make a couple of points about uh, how the COVID-19 battle has underscores the importance of pharmaceutical companies in battling this disease. And before that uh, came along, that hideous disease, I don't think people fully appreciated how important life sciences are on a day-to-day -day basis to our better quality of life, enabling us to live longer and have a better quality of life. Uh, this has underscored that. Medicines, mechanical devices, better food, more environmentally friendly grown food, all of those things just don't happen. People make them happen. Organizations and companies under BIO, B-I-O, make them happen. So, uh, doctor, before we get into the battle against COVID and some of the initiatives you've already undertaken, give us a little bit about your unique background. You cover academia, private sector, public sector, scientific research, what you call in the trade, the bench, quite an array of experiences. So start with uh, Oakland, California, and your uh, parents who were in public health. So this is not a new space for you. No, I guess you can say it's kind of in my blood. First of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to join you here today. I have to say, bio has been such an amazing place to join because it touches all the parts of my history and all of my areas of interest. I grew up as a child of two public health 
dedicated professionals. My mother was a public health nurse. My father was a psychologist who designed programs for communities that couldn't afford psychological care. And growing up in Oakland, California in the 70s and 80s, it was just very apparent that there were these critical needs for vulnerable communities and that health and science and medicine had a solution or at least part of the solution. And I think I've been following that thread to its logical ends since then. I went back east for college, started out as a psych major, but got really interested in, in biochemistry. Well, describe the, uh, was it at Harvard? You were at Harvard. How life, uh, serendipitous changes can take place. The internship, uh, when you returned to California, and most professors wouldn't do it, but describe that internship, which really profoundly changed the course of your life. It speaks to the power of teaching assistants. I remembered I was wrapping up freshman year biology, and my teaching assistant said to the entire class, if you get a chance over the summer, work in a lab, because you'll see a different side of science than you ever see in the classroom. And I thought, well, I knew what science classrooms were like. I knew what science work was like. But I didn't have anything better to do, and I thought, this is very intriguing. So I went home, and I went to the UC Berkeley campus, where both of my parents had gone to graduate school, and I got a list from the biology department of all of the 29 professors that were working there, and I just called them one by one. <laughs> and the first 28 said, thank you very much, but no thank you. And the 29th professor um, really took pity on me and said, why don't you come in and speak to me? it turns out she was a young female professor, associate professor at the time, later full professor, um, who had gone to Harvard undergrad as well. And she saw something in me and she said, why don't you spend the summer volunteering in my lab? And my teaching assistant had been absolutely right. Being able to work at the bench on a problem that nobody knows the answer to and figuring out what are the techniques and approaches and lines of questioning you can pursue to find an answer at your own speed, at your own pace. You can be there 24 hours a day if that, if your curiosity drives you to that. That self-directed inquiry was such a powerful experience and I still love that process. And that's how I kind of fell in love with the lab bench and ended up doing an MD-PhD at, at Duke after that. You were the first uh, African-American woman to uh, do that joint program. So you're both MD and PhD. Yes, it was, uh, it was an interesting place to hit. I'd been, grown up in the Bay Area, then I'd gone to Boston for college um, to hit North Carolina and walk on the campus the first week and find out if I were to make it through the gauntlet, I'd be the first African-American to finish, and that they had some concerns as to whether or not that was even possible since the first person they had admitted of color did not survive the process. Um, from an emotional point of view. And so there was, you could feel the weight of history, you know, that there, you were not just there as a student representing yourself. And I would look to my left and to my right and all of my fellow medical students and later graduate students all wondered if they had what it took to get through. We all had those doubts, but you were representing all the others that were coming behind you as well. And so I think that's not a, an uncommon pressure um, that Black professionals face as they're trying to hone their expertise, find their way in the world, and and also figure out what their role is in, in improving things for not just themselves, but for others coming behind them. We'll get uh, later about uh, the initiatives you're taking in uh, diversity, covering the whole area, not just in terms of opportunities such as you blaze for you and others, but also in uh, clinical trials and uh, making sure everyone has access to health. In terms of uh, your early career, you uh, fell in love with, as you, as they say, the lab bench, but also you got interested in public policy. And I think it was through uh, breeding transgenic mice <laughs> that uh, you, do you, your you, homework. Uh, that you uh, found, found this unique bridge. Well, walk us through that. Again, it, it underscores how if you open up your life to opportunities, it can take amazing directions. You're absolutely right. I, you know, when mentees come to me, I always say, you know, follow that question that keeps you up at night. Follow the thing that you're just burning to find the solution for, because that's where you'll have the most impact. And I was doing my graduate work, it was going well, and it was back in the time where um, I had to breed transgenic mice. So I had to do all these back crosses of mice and it was gonna take a year 
in which the only thing I really had to do was check on them once a week and change their cages. And so I thought, well, why don't I spend the time more productively by taking some science policy classes? We had a mandatory like six weeks introduction to health policy in medical school. And I got very intrigued by the images of Harold Varmus, I'm not sure if you'll remember this, testifying on Capitol Hill that NIH funding needed to be doubled, which I completely agreed with, but that Congress people and by proxy, the American people who had placed in there um, really didn't have much say as to how NIH spent that money because we needed to pursue investigator-driven research at all costs. And so we shouldn't interfere with the allocation of those funds once they were handed over to the precious hands of NIH. And while I revered NIH, I was an NIH medical scientist training program trainee at the time. They paid for my medical education. I also remembered quite clearly the people that I grew up with and who I would go home to on holidays who couldn't understand how biomedical research impacted their lives. They couldn't see the relevance of it. It was a nice to have a luxury, something that didn't seem to make much sense to them as even a career pursuit. And yet they were literally dying from the lack of biomedical solutions. And so there was this disconnect that still bothers me to this day behind this huge enterprise of trying to generate new cures and solutions. And the people who are sitting there patiently waiting for them that don't necessarily see the levers and the barriers that stand in the way of the progress that they so desperately need. And so it was that opportunity to pursue that question in a little more depth that year. And then later as an American Association for the Advancement of Science, Science Policy Fellow at the National Science Foundation, that really gave me the foundation for asking that question in many different ways and understanding all of the actors along the pipeline of biomedical innovation. And you ended up doing uh, research on science with uh, Senator Lieberman, including, I think, doing a paper on how we uh, should prepare for a biological attack. <laughs> but to, to tell, tell us about that. That, that was quite uh, farsighted. Yeah. Well, I was actually, I was thinking about this um, the other day when we were sitting witnessing the horrible attack on the Capitol um, that that was one of those days where you'll always remember for the rest of your life where you were. And I started to think to myself, um, and it almost, I tear up thinking about it, where I was for those other landmark events. When the Challenger crashed, I was sitting in a chemistry class and I remember thinking science should be able to figure out what went wrong. And when 9-11 hit, I was working in the emergency room of Children's National Medical Center here in Washington, D.C., and we could see the smoke of Pentagon from the lounge, from the doctor's lounge. And it was just so disturbing to me. And you had this very sense that, you know, life was short. And so I was reached out to by Senator Lieberman's office for a one-year um, position that turned into five years. And it, I started out working on the bioterrorism issues because we had just had the anthrax attacks um, on the heels of 9-11. And the entire city was under siege at the time. And we were trying to figure out how do we prepare for foreign attacks on our freedom. And so I thought science had a huge role to play in that. The other piece I got to work on in his office, particularly as he started to run for president, and I got to lead his health section, was... That was in 2004 he ran. Exactly, exactly. Um, he's still one of my favorite bosses of all time. Um but he asked the tough question, how can we make biomedical research more relevant? Because innovation is such an important driver of our economy, of our health, of our overall future as a country. And so we started, I remember people almost accused us of blasphemy at the time, saying we needed an American center for cures. We needed a place where it was not just academic research at NIH pursued to academic curiosity, but really a focused effort, like we do in so many other places, like we do in space, on how do we get from that great science to cures that really help patients. And you see the impact of that kind of focused effort this year with Operation Warp Speed. It really takes a cross-governmental, cross-sector, multi-stakeholder approach to drive all this great science to the bedside. And that's what really matters.
And uh, that's going to be something uh, that hopefully will be a, a model for the future, that cross-collaboration and breaking down those silos instead of uh, everyone doing their own thing and not uh, making those uh, cross-collaborations. You then uh, went from uh, Senator Lieberman. You served on uh, President-elect Barack Obama's transition team on science and then uh, took a position with uh, the FDA. I did. I did. Um, I had a chance to, great honor, to work in the Center for Devices and Radiological Health at the Food and Drug Administration, which focuses on not just medical devices, but also all of our diagnostic tests, all of our protective equipment. We've seen quite clearly this year what a critical role that sector of healthcare plays. I was Associate Center Director for Science, where we got to really oversee how we think about regulatory science, which is a field of science most people don't actually think much about and wasn't even a really term of art until Commissioner Peggy Hamburg really put her finger on it. But there's a science around certainty, a science around how people come to trust whether or not a medical intervention does what it promises to do, i.e. is effective and or is safe. And the tools, the approaches we use, the end goal, you know, how do we decide we've had enough data and we have that confidence? All of those are issues of regulatory science. And it was so fulfilling to get to oversee that throughout the center and think about new ways we could drive towards that assurance and also bring in more voices to the process, including patient voices, because they have a critical point of input as to deciding, not having someone else paternalistically decide for them, but deciding for themselves what risks they're willing to bear and what benefits will really make a difference in their lives. Well, you've made the point in terms of uh, patients, instead of uh, physicians and the regulators guessing what is good for a patient, how about talking to the patients themselves, finding out what they need, what their fears are, what their true wants are, instead of kind of guessing. And uh, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But that kind of basic input is uh, one of your initiatives at Bio. Mm -hmm. it's, it's hugely important because one of the things we found at FDA, and it's true to this day, is that people have a tendency to take anecdotal information from patients. But that's not enough to carry the day. If you're a, a reviewer at the Food and Drug Administration making a decision on a new drug, you know, or you're sitting in a company trying to decide if you're on the right track, you really need data. We're in the business of science and data. And so looking at the patient preference level where you actually get to study population level information about patients and how they feel across the spectrum of illness, that's very critically important. And you only get to refining those methods by working hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder with patient groups because they know their illnesses better than anyone else. And I I got to know that very clearly um, through witnessing my first husband's struggle with cystic fibrosis. You get to see how much insight and how much knowledge patients have about the, their personal journey um, and the journey of other patients around them and what is really going to improve things for them. It's, it's, it's uh, absolutely true. And then uh, after the FDA, you went to J&J, &J, uh, Johnson & Johnson. Quickly describe your experiences there, especially talking about collaboration. Obviously, J&J &J is a single company, but it's involved. Uh, you had to try to get products through in 152 different countries, regulatory hurdles. That must have been quite an education. It really was. I feel like I, I've spent my career inching my way down the biomedical pipeline. <laughs> so I started on Capitol Hill and I was in the think tank space, just kind of learning about all the different players in the ecosystem. Then at the Food and Drug Administration, where the rubber hits the road, and then getting to see how companies think about research and developing these platforms that are so critically important to patients. And, you know, there's a, it's a very high stakes game. So at J&J, &J, I led regulatory and then regulatory and clinical and preclinical for all of the medical device companies in J&J. &J. And so my team, which you know spanned the globe, was responsible for putting products in the market or displaying the proof of products in the market in 152 countries around the world. And so you got to see how culturally specific approaches were to whether or not a drug or a product should come into a market. And it's, it's very politicized, as it should be, because it's a reflection of cultural norms. 
But we need to think about science in those terms because it's very important. And then I had the great opportunity to work with our global external innovation team, which is really about the biomedical ecosystem, looking out for those small and emerging biotech companies, which I get the pleasure of working with a lot now, that might have the next big solution, that have taken those big intellectual and financial leaps of faith to invest in entirely new breakthrough approaches in therapies. And then whether or not there's an opportunity to partner or in some cases acquire those companies so that their solutions can reach the broader world. And so I really got to see how seamless that cooperation is between um, small and emerging biotechs and our large pharmaceutical companies. And it's, it's a pleasure in bio to get a chance to work with both ends of that spectrum. So that experience uh, with the uh, large pharma companies getting over the old idea that it's got to be invented here, no, uh, a lot of it comes from uh, the outside, helped probably break down some of the barriers when making this collaborative effort against COVID-19. Just quickly, briefly describe bio, which uh, covers not only uh, pharmaceuticals, but also agriculture and uh, the environment. It's, it's quite a broad canvas you have there. You know, it is a broad mandate. So um, we at Bio represent a thousand biotech companies, and they are in the food and agriculture space, the energy and environment space, and healthcare. And so it's so interesting to see the range of companies. And we have from big to small. 90% of our companies are small companies, but we also have our larger players in all three of those spaces. And so it's very interesting to see how they come together and where their interests align and overlap. We spent a lot of time soul searching this summer at the Biotechnology Innovation Organization as we kind of reset our mission and figured where we were going to go from 2020. And so we asked ourselves quite frankly the question, should we continue to be that big tent and it was so critically important that we were. And it's really because as we look at science as something that from a social justice lens really should be available to all, you can see how vulnerable communities need all of those sectors to progress and innovate to really have that opportunity that we hope we will eventually realize for all Americans. Right. And just on agriculture, uh, most people don't realize it's become very high tech now. Oh, it has. You don't think of uh, <laughs> agriculture as high tech, but it's become that. One of your uh, missions at uh, Bio is getting people to more appreciate uh, how critical this industry is to uh, the betterment of their lives. And uh, you uh, said uh, a lot of policymakers have unfortunately played political football with our industry. Scientists aren't best at telling their stories. I'll give it to them. We were sitting ducks in many ways. <laughs> Explain how uh, you see as part of your mission, getting the word out, what an extraordinary industry this is. Mm -hmm. Well, scientists are single focused. That's what makes them such amazing scientists. They are focused on that problem that keeps them up at night and they're passionate about finding that, but they often forget to look up and figure out how the broader social context is, is impacting them. And so I really see our role at Bio as serving as that voice, that platform for them, and that bridge to the broader cultural conversation about what science can do. Science is the social justice issue of our age. It is so critically important because when I think about those communities I grew up with in Oakland, what they needed was access to clean water. They needed access to nutritious foods. They needed clean air, and they needed to know that not only did they have access to health care, but once they got in the door of the doctor's office, they would actually have solutions on in the medicine cabinet that would help them. And you only get all of those things through applying biotechnology to all of those problems and working without relenting. So this is what's so critically important. We've seen this year with covid that the rate of speed of developing a new COVID vaccine or COVID therapeutics has a disproportionate negative impact on communities of color because they're disproportionately impacted by the illness. So every week we save in developing a new COVID vaccine is going to, by proportion, save more black and brown lives than it will others, although it's important for all. 
And so it's not to say that it's more important for one community than the other, but it's to say that it's not enough for us just to focus on access to healthcare, although that is critically important when we're talking about social justice. It's also important that we're talking about not slowing down, not giving up on that innovation engine, because that innovation engine is life-saving. Before we get to that, one of the things that Bio did is uh, the tracker on uh, when the COVID-19 crisis came, keeping track of therapeutics, of vaccines. Tell us a little bit about that. It's quite, quite amazing the numbers involved. It's staggering. So early in the pandemic, Bio really brought all of our companies together to say, what can we do? And we did lots of different work. We set up a Craigslist that basically platform that let companies mix and match resources. So one company had lab equipment, the other company had manufacturing capacity. How could we pool those resources to get to the end goal? That was very successful. From there, we built a COVID tracker, which globally tracked all of the research and development programs that are aimed at stopping or preventing COVID. And we still have that tracker going today. At our height in in December, we had 838 research and development programs aimed at COVID underway around the globe, many of them in, by biomember companies. And that's an amazing to see that rate of focus on, a, on one disease area within the space of 12 months. Many people have seen the COVID vaccine leading candidates talked about their clinical trials without realizing that there are actually 191 COVID vaccines in development. And while that might seem a bit more than we need sitting here today, I'll tell you three or four months ago when it was unclear if any of them would be successful, I was so happy that we had that many shots on goal because you can never predict with science what will actually cross that finish line. And so we needed as many different intellectual approaches to the problem as possible. Well, this uh, touches on what you uh, mentioned earlier, and that is the Coronavirus Collaboration Initiative uh, that uh, Bio took uh, early uh, 2020. I'll quickly go through that because that was absolutely unprecedented in enabling us to uh, be where we are today, where we can see a vaccine in a matter of months rather than years. As you pointed out, the record before for a vaccine was, I think, months, and that took four years. Mm-hmm. You know, 11 months was a staggering increase in, in that rate of speed. Bio, among many others, played a key role, and Operation Warp Speed is to be lauded for the great foresight and focus that it placed on the efforts. But the industry as a whole also had lots of dedication and the ability to overlook competition and overlook how they could maybe not work together in the past to find new ways to collaborate. And so we really helped them on that collaboration front, particularly when it came to finding manufacturing capacity and making sure that we were sharing the scientific information as it was coming, which was fast and furious, to try to speed everyone's uh, progress along the route. It's uh, quite, quite something. And now we have the challenge today of vaccine distribution, which is not going as uh, smoothly. Uh, discuss that. Rules such as when you have the vaccine, they want you to wait 15 minutes. Well, if you're going to have a problem, you'll you'll have a problem, but that seems to slow down the distribution. Or some are saying that if uh, somebody doesn't show up for an appointment, just make sure somebody gets it. That helps herd immunity. Give us your thoughts on the distribution and trying to uh, get that going with the kind of uh, warp speed, so to speak, that uh, led to the development of the vaccine. Well, let's be clear. There is no excuse for where we find ourselves today. I, my mother-in-law lives in Germany, and she had an appointment in the middle of December for when she was going to get her first, her first COVID vaccine. This is unbelievable that we would put this much attention into developing the vaccines and developing the therapeutics, and yet here we sit in January with the same therapeutics that were able to rescue the president sitting in in freezers unused and vaccines being disposed of at the end of the day because all of the content of the vial cannot be used because we cannot organize our response. It is astounding and it is heartbreaking to watch. There's no excuse for this. This is not rocket science. We've done mass vaccination programs before 
And the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, have been saying for months what would be necessary for the states to be able to actually deliver the vaccine, get shots in arms. But they weren't given the resources. They weren't given the attention it deserved. So states are just now this week getting their hands on the resources they need. We've been speaking to governors across the country. And, you know, we heard from one governor who said, well, I have boxes of of the vaccine delivered on pallets and I have some resources to fund setting up clinics to deliver them, but I don't have any funding, for example, to set up and train people on the IT system needed to track all the doses of the vaccine, particularly important in a two-dose vaccine situation. You need to be able to track who has had the vaccine. But it's also critically important because lest we forget, these vaccines are authorized under emergency use authorization, which by definition means we don't yet know everything about what we'll see when the vaccine goes into the majority of the population. And so it's important to track all of that information so that we can fully understand it. Now, that being said, I don't want anyone to mistake my words. These vaccines have been under more scrutiny than any vaccines in history. Um, They've been in tens of thousands of people before they were ever released across the country. And we have the utmost confidence in, in bio in the safety and efficacy of both the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines and the ones to come. What are your thoughts on making use of the drugstores like we do uh, for uh, other vaccines? Should we be employing CVS and Walgreens just like we do for flu vaccines? Yes, and I know that there are plans to involve them very closely. The pharmacists have been very involved in the planning. It's really just having the funding to carry out all of those pieces. You know, you mentioned the waiting period, and while that does seem excessive, it's important because there are very rare allergic reactions to the vaccines. And so that observation period allows us to to treat anyone if that occurs. But we are starting to hear that our hospitals are already swamped uh, in dealing with COVID. And so dedicating additional space or resources or personnel from hospitals to delivering the vaccine is going a step too far. It's asking too much. So we need to get out into the communities. Of course, we need pharmacies to be involved, but we also need to start thinking about how we're going to set up mass vaccination centers that are are elsewhere so that no matter where you are in the country, you can be reached and you can be reached quickly. Looking to the future, uh, assuming we get through these uh, current obstacles by spring, summer, we should have a mass vaccination program underway and everyone, uh, most people can get one. What lessons do you think we've learned from this in terms of both the speed of which the vaccinations were developed, perhaps uh, some would say more modernized testing at the FDA for other drugs, collaborations. You've talked about the miracle of uh, government and for-profit companies working together. What are some of the lessons we can take away and avoid what happened in the 1980s when uh, activists for uh, fighting AIDS uh, pressured the FDA to uh, go out of the normal bounds to uh, try to get these cocktails out there. And people thought, well, that'll lead to big reforms quickly. It really didn't happen. What lessons are we learning and how do we make sure uh, we just don't go back to the same old ways of everyone going their own narrow way? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a wise um, memory from history to caution us these days. We have learned a tremendous amount. So when it comes to preventing the next pandemic, when it comes to even preventing the next iteration of COVID, because we know it's constantly mutating and evolving, we are incredibly prepared. The platforms that have shown success, for example, the the mRNA platform that has been used in both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine are revolutionary in that they will forever change how we think about developing new vaccines. We also, I think, have have learned a lot about early warning systems and how seriously we need to take those early calls and the public health measures that work and don't work. But the things I think we've learned that are most impactful don't even have to do with infectious diseases. We have seen that the science is not our barrier, that often it's the bureaucracy, it's the miscommunication and misalignment, and it's the lack of resources and being focused on the solution and having a market for that solution at the end of the day that will deliver cures faster and better to patients. And that's what I hope we don't lose sight of. The Food and Drug Administration showed amazing flexibility in the context of COVID. 
we had manufacturers saying, well, what normally takes me two to four weeks to get a response to FDA um, in a formal letter, now I'm able to get them on the phone and really able to work in real time towards adapting our plans to make sure they meet FDA's demands. We should never settle for less again, but that's going to take resourcing the FDA to be able to have that high touch and rapid response approach. We've also seen, interestingly enough, that we need a new approach to clinical trials. It is telling that the two vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer, one used the more federalized clinical trial approach uh, to go through the process, and one did not. And the federal approach didn't necessarily save time. And so we need to look at our national clinical trial networks and ask us, ask ourselves, why are they not more easily mobilized for these massive public health concerns? And why is it so hard to get diverse patient populations through them? These are critically important questions that we are just starting to ask, but they'll be very important, not just for infectious diseases, but for every disease out there that's awaiting a cure. That leads into uh, the whole area of uh, diversity. Bio earlier in uh, 2020 came up with a a report called Measuring Diversity in the Biotech Industry and found that 11% of the companies had non-white CEOs, 16% women CEOs. And you've made the point they've made some great progress in the industry, but a lot more has to be done. But also, as you alluded to, in the area of clinical trials, if you don't have a diverse population there, as you mentioned earlier, different groups of people, whether it's ethnic, racial, or gender, have different reactions and their responses when they get the disease. And uh, this has not been uh, studied the way it uh, should have been before. So you've made uh, this kind of diversity challenge uh, one of your major goals. Tell us first about uh, bringing talent in. You uh, were, uh, for example, I think a beneficiary, I believe, of the United Negro College uh, uh, Fellowship. What's being done there to, uh, as they say in baseball, have the farm team to start developing talent that can uh, tackle these life science problems? Well, you've hit on all of the critical points of the pipeline, and that is very, very important. You know, as our companies were um, coming together, figuring out how we could respond to the racial unrest in the summer, we came upon what we now have the tenets of our bioequality agenda. So we have three pillars of that agenda. The first is really around making sure that we have clinical trial diversity and that we are seen as an industry pursuing a lot of the efforts that we already pursue to make sure that everyone has access, affordable access to COVID vaccines and therapeutics, and then extending that to other disease areas as we go. It's very, very important that our trials are representative of the people they serve. I've got to say, as I've been speaking across the country about the need for people of color to take the COVID vaccine, it is irreplaceable to be able to say that 35% of the Moderna trial participants, 42% of the Pfizer trial participants for the vaccines were people of color, because that is, that's the scientific proof that these vaccines are going to be safe in those communities as well. And we needed that proof, and we need that in more disease areas going forward. The second pillar is really around the talent pipeline. As you alluded to, I had a United Negro College Fund Merck fellowship. Um, they partnered on a fellowship when I was in graduate school that really helped me get my graduate research across the finish line. And many of our companies have been working in these spaces for years. Biogen in Boston has trained over 250 African-American scientists over the last 20 years. So part of what we wanted to do at Bio is shine a spotlight on all those great investments. But we also want to give line of sight to the talent that's come through those programs to all of the companies in our ecosystem. Many of our small companies don't have the bandwidth to dedicate resources to those types of efforts. And yet we are an ecosystem. A large pharmaceutical company that's very diverse is constantly acquiring smaller companies. And if those smaller companies aren't diverse as well, it sets back the clock. And so we want everyone to have line of sight. So we're setting up a, a LinkedIn type network of the talent that's come through those programs so that everyone within biotech can have line of sight to them. And then finally, it's using the power of the purse. Our industry has incredible economic power um, to yield and to wield. 
And so we want to make sure that throughout our pipeline, we're patronizing women-owned and minority-owned businesses and businesses that devote substantial energy to diversity um, when we're making those choices for vendors, because our vendor pipeline is incredibly strong and our companies not just produce economic development for themselves and their communities, but also for the many companies that touch them. You've made the point in the, in the past about uh, local efforts uh, that may not get headlines but are critical. Can you just quickly describe one of them? I think it was in Massachusetts called OnRamp. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So there's there's many different programs. Um, there's a partnership in Massachusetts that actually goes around and just tries to get volunteer time from many of the people in our companies that want to volunteer and work towards greater diversity. And it's been amazing to see the uptake of those types of efforts. We're Scientists are poised to be activists, particularly the generation that is coming up now. And so you witness the combination of scientific ingenuity and activism, and it is inspiring to witness. Talking about clinical trials, you've also made mention in the past that uh, we need better trials for kids that uh, both in terms of medicines, medical devices, there's sort of an underserved community in, in a way that uh, we design things for adults and then somehow figure we can uh, miniaturize it for kids. It doesn't always work out that way. Yeah, and we need to be practical about what it, what life is like for, for children who are patients. It's often something people don't even think about. I, I remember when we were developing an artificial pancreas um, technology at J&J, and FDA was demanding that we do a three-month inpatient study for children who were completely under control um, with their insulin. And you think about three months in the life of a child where you have school, where parents have to also be there, where the clinical trial site is probably you know, miles away, if not a plane ride away from your home. And it's just not a practical approach to figuring out what will work in a childhood setting. And so we have to figure out where we need flexibility and where we need certainty. And we've seen that flexibility this year at FDA, and I'm hoping that we can apply it to more spaces, including the pediatric space, which is really underserved, particularly in the medical device end of the spectrum. Right. And uh, serving uh, underserved communities, one company that's out there, and maybe there are some others, is called Village MD. Uh, which, as you know, made an agreement, I think, with Walgreens over the next five years to uh, put in uh, facilities in several hundred Walgreens stores in underserved communities. But what the company seems to have done is found a way to set up a system where pharmacists, nurses, and others help physicians focus where physicians, which have a great burnout challenge today, can actually practice medicine rather than dealing with all these other things. And uh, they can uh, are freed up precisely because there's system in place where they can have access, office systems and the like, and just focus on what needs to be focused on, caring for people, and on a consistent basis. Instead of when you have a problem, you come in, treat the problem, no effective follow-through, which people with chronic conditions, you're not going to get a good result long-term. I'm so glad you brought up that example because it underscores that our private sector has the most creative and probably effective solutions for some of these problems that we're facing. We've seen it in our development for COVID, but it's also true in the delivery of healthcare. And so we really need to empower more of the private sector to use that creativity to to test drive different ideas because that diversity of ideas is really gonna get us where we need to go. And on uh, pricing, hugely contentious issue. Some of us uh, forget that uh, research is not cheap. As you've pointed out, uh, research often involves, and we saw with COVID, two steps forward, but then one step back. It's not a smooth process. You're always trying to find out what works and what doesn't work. And uh, it can be very expensive. And uh, this summer, the uh, Trump administration came out with, I think, some executive orders on uh, trying to uh, lower the price of prescriptive medicines for uh using Medicare. And uh, you pointed out a very nice goal, but you're doing it in a way in which you're going to jeopardize the creativity that makes these advances possible. Can you walk through what they were doing and why, even though the intentions may have been good, 
could have a, a deleterious impact yeah. on the future of these innovations. Yeah, so the Trump executive order that called for a most favored nation status in terms of determining drug prices was well-intentioned but ill-conceived. The idea was that the U.S. would look across the OECD countries and determine whether or not the price in Croatia or the price in Greece should be the price in the U.S., and that just obscures the fact that we need to do everything we can to make sure our American innovation engine, which is saving lives, not just here in the States, but around the world, continues to function. There's a reason why the innovation ecosystems in much of Europe and much of the rest of the world are not producing at the rate that we are. When we did the COVID tracker, for example, of those 838 projects, over 50% of them were U.S.-based. That means the U.S. is doing more innovation in this space than the rest of the world combined. And that's not by accident. So we have to figure out how we accomplish the goal that we really intend to reach, which is having affordable access for everyone in the United States to critical pharmaceuticals and cures and at the same time, having a rapid and robust innovation engine so that we get new cures every day. You can't have one at the expense of the other because it, it makes no sense to make sure we have affordable access to cholesterol-lowering drugs for the next 15 years, when in five years we may not even need cholesterol-lowering drugs because innovation could come up with not some new solution that would make them irrelevant. So we have to keep our eye on the moving target of science because science does not slow down for us and we should not try to slow it down. So most favored nation status was just a way to punish American companies who are in the midst of trying to respond to COVID um, for trying to reach solutions in, in other economies that are not as strong as the U.S. Instead of punishing our willingness to work across borders and across the world to deliver American innovation, we should figure out what it takes as a country to figure out what re, how we're going to mobilize and focus the resources needed for both healthcare and innovation. You can't have one without the other. And our lawsuit against the Trump administration for that policy was recently successful in getting a permanent injunction against MFN because it has not been fully studied. It is unimplementable and illogical. Um, and did not follow proper procedures in getting implemented. So we were so gratified to see that the court saw saw our version of that as well. On a personal side, I've never understood why we didn't make that a trade issue. It takes uh, over $2 billion to develop a drug. Uh, other countries, in effect, force us to our companies to sell at just above cost, and they don't share in the development costs. So we're subsidizing the rest of the world that should be a trade issue. You uh, want our medicines, you should uh, help pay for the development of those medicines, which in a way would help other countries to get uh, do more R&D if they know there was a way to uh, get fair pricing and recover those uh, expenses. And uh, in terms of pricing, you uh, mentioned your first husband had that hideous disease, cystic fibrosis. But because of uh, innovation, Jeffrey Lydon and uh, Vertex uh, came up with uh, treatments that have been effective for 90% of people who have a disease that was once a, a, a death sentence, and tens of thousands of people are alive today who wouldn't have been otherwise. Those, those are miracles. They're miracles, and the speed of miracles matter. We tend to look back on them historically and think, well, they would have happened anyway, or it, they just happened when the science made them possible. But our decisions have a huge impact on that rate. And that rate has consequences. Um, you know, my first husband passed away a little over a year ago. He was fortunate enough to have great health insurance and to survive a lung transplant, but he was too young to be there when those great discoveries and breakthroughs came through at Vertex. And I know he'd be so happy to see how successful those have been across the globe for CF patients. But that rate of speed cost lives. And so we cannot lose sight of the end goal of making sure we have new solutions and cures for diseases, because there's many diseases today that have no good options. And that is unacceptable. Well, that gets to uh, what has been done with uh, the COVID-19 vaccines, that kind of urgency. You know about Martine Rothblatt, whose daughter had a seemingly incurable disease, and she uh, found a way to uh, 
get treatment that has literally saved tens of thousands of lives, but it was done with an urgency, not, oh, well, maybe in 10 years we'll have something. No, you got to get it done faster and get it out faster. Your industry represents really the future. Give us in closing a few exciting things like uh, synthetic biology, mm. uh, some, some of the things uh, that sound science fiction today, but are going to uh, make our lives better in the future. Oh, there's so many options out there. You know, being able to actually design proteins from scratch and, you know, build testing on a chip that will cut down on the number of patients that we even need for clinical trials. All of these things are critically important. But I think the image that I most love recently is the image from one of our companies, um, Benson Hill, who's an agriculture company. And they use CRISPR, which is very um, pinpointed gene editing, uh, to be able to produce new crops. And while that used to be very expensive and you could only do it for large crops like feed corn, for example, they're bringing down the cost using artificial intelligence so they can do it for micro crops. So they said, you know, look, can you imagine engineering yellow squash so that it tastes more appealing to kids, the color is more vibrant, it has more protein in it, and it grows more efficiently in a hydroponic setting so that suddenly it becomes something you can grow in a hydroponic um, farm that you've set up in a deserted strip mall in the middle of an inner city down the street from the local bodega as opposed to something that's imported into only Whole Foods and is available to only wealthy families or appealing to those families. So being able to have a, a bouquet of different fruits and vegetables that deliver the nutrition that children need in a way that's affordable and accessible and close and fast and cheap is just so inspiring to me. And that's the kind of ingenuity that our companies are delivering every day. And as you've pointed out, at uh, far less cost and uh, what you just said about uh, where you can do these hydroponics, that's good news for commercial real estate, which is a part of it's taken a real hit during this COVID crisis. Uh, maybe you don't have to have traditional offices. This, these special needs uh, can be rising up in a very uh, widespread and affordable way. We don't have many win-win um, situations these days, but biotech has many win-win situations, and that's what's so inspiring about the sector. Thank you again, Dr. McMurray-Heath. You've had a very remarkable career and inspiration to us all. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes. Looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.